proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the Reformed Confessions of the Faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. My name is Aaron Carr, and I am joined by my two comrades, Zach and Chris, and we are tackling today Chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession, which deals with God's covenant with man. Gentlemen, how you doing? Doing well. Not too bad. Zach, you got something big happening this weekend. Yes, I do. I am uh, leaving you guys. <laughs> I was at, Well, we talked about it last week or a couple weeks ago, but I was going to go to a conference with you guys with a bunch of uh, Presbyterians, and instead I'm going to a, a confessional piety conference with a bunch of Reformed Baptists because I'd be more at home. And it just so happens that the topic we're talking about today will be discussed there. Right, right. It will be. And uh, there are a lot of nuances as far as the views of covenant go. Um, and so I'm excited to learn because I'm. this is really new for me, the idea of covenant theology, reformed theology. So I'm excited to learn. Zach, would you have said you were a dispensationalist prior or just like kind of didn't really know what you were? Didn't really know. Um, I mean, I think like most people, like most modern Baptists, like grow, like we grew up in the and then, like, I grew up in the 90s, like, hearing about Left Behind, and, like, those books are super popular. So that kind of, uh, that particular form of dispensationalism kind of just seeped into my thinking just because that's what I was around. Um, but I, I don't think I would have labeled myself anything. Just kind of, I'm just now starting to learn about the terminology and the differences, so. And who would you say is, like, your favorite writer on this topic right now as you're just kind of absorbing it? that is a good question. Um, being immersed in it. Right. Did I well, get that right, Chris? He's being immersed in... Yeah, there you go. I like that word. <laughs> it's a in, good word. Immersed should, in the covenant. You should use it more. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm just trying to be Baptist friendly. As far as uh, authors, I haven't read the book yet, but I'm excited because I hear that it's kind of a foundational work for uh, 1689 uh, Federalism, which is a certain type of uh, Reformed Baptist covenant theology. And there's a book called The Distinctiveness of Reformed Baptist Theology, and it's by Pascal Deneau, or Denault. We're not French, so I'm not going to be all fancy pants. But Although we are in Michigan. We are. Where you don't say things in a French way, though. That's true. Detroit. Yep, Detroit. So, so, it's not Detroit. Right. So Pascal Denault, we'll just call him that. Right. But anyway, it's like a pretty, uh, it's a pretty short book. It's only probably like, uh, it's probably maybe 100, 150 pages. And so I'm excited to crack that one open. So I can't say it's my favorite author yet because I haven't read it, but I've, I've heard it's good. Hey, Chris, what about you? What's, what was kind of your journey uh, into covenant theology were you a hardcore hardcore Ryrie study bible dispensationalist yeah i was uh i was deeply immersed within uh the dispensational camp and uh you know i when i initially kind of came out of that i kind of entered into the whole uh kind of john macarthur dispensational calvinist kind of side of things for quite a while and which is really kind of a weird position Mm-hmm. Because it really doesn't have a whole lot of boundaries other than you're a Calvinist who immerses people. Yeah. That, that, yeah. that view probably 
uh, like a, the Calvinist dispensationalist John MacArthur brand is probably closest to what my old church was. But and you, so, but you also have to be anti-charismatic, right? And they were. <laughs> so <laughs> the, that's probably that's probably the closest that we would get to describing my upbringing was that brand of theology, which is kind of a mismatch of different brands. So, so back to you, Chris. Your 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 up, upbringing was a little bit of this dispensationalism, but then you became a Calvinist, but a MacArthurite. Yeah, yeah. you know, you, it's funny. I always tell people, you know, what did it for me? It wasn't anyone else that I was reading or anything. I was doing exegesis of the Book of Romans for uh, the series I was preaching through the Book of Romans, and I began a few months prior to start into chapter nine. And right there at the beginning, uh, you know, where Paul starts talking about, you know, not all those who descended from Israel are Israel, uh, but is the children of the promise who are counted as seed. It, it just hit me. And I started going, oh, no. <laughs> and, <laughs> Your world was caving in. It did, and I started asking more questions, and I, I started going to a few guys I knew who were uh, covenantal in their theology and kind of saying, well, look, I'm not saying I buy this, but uh, just hypothetically speaking. Chris, when you say they were covenantal in their theology, but they're attending a church that's not truly covenantal, or is that is it a fair assessment, or, or were these guys at a, confe- at a covenantal church? Um, some of them were, some of them weren't, uh, as far as uh, confessional uh, covenant uh, theology. Some of them would just be, uh, you know, covenantal in their their framework, their understanding of Scripture, uh, but don't necessarily go to a uh, a confessional church. But uh, you know, just kind of went to a variety of different people and and began asking questions and continued my own study through those chapters, which I had always been taught were foundational for uh, understanding of dispensationalism as it pertains to eschatology. And then from there, started branching out and getting into my understanding of the book of Revelation and a whole number of other things. And, you know, I really felt like I was almost unbrainwashing myself uh, of my previous understanding of Scripture and numerous kind of major key passages that uh, had to do with the dispensational understanding of Scripture. And finally, probably a good year or so later, I was confident enough in it to say, I am stepping away from my dispensationalism and uh, and embracing a, a covenant view of the theology of the Bible. The biblical view. Right. The, the, the biblical <laughs> view. <laughs> now, now, as we jump into this, uh, for those of us, I guess, uh, those of you joining us at home, we're in the seventh chapter of the Westminster Confession, and in the very beginning, the very first um, uh, paragraph says, the distance between God and his creation is so great that although reasoning creatures owe him obedience as their creator, they nonetheless could never realize any blessedness or reward from him without his willingness, his willing condescending to them. And so it pleased God to provide for man by means of covenants. And uh, I think Meredith Klein has done a great service to the church in his uh, study specifically on the book of Deuteronomy. 
and talking about the covenant, and it gives us a framework to understand that when the Pentateuch is being written, um, Moses is using a ancient Near East understanding of of kings and servants, uh, Sutherans and vassals, and that it's through this treaty uh, makeup it gives us a clear understanding of kind of the um, the approach that Moses is using there in those foundational books. But obviously, the divine act of the Holy Spirit in in working it, it, it's all throughout. We see it in the prophetic language. We see it um, throughout. Um, the historic books of the of the Old Testament, and all of us in this room would agree that it's through these covenants that God is um, making um, agreements, um, first and foremost, with himself. We would call that the covenant of redemption. And then from that covenant of redemption, it, it works itself out in what is typically known as the covenant of works, or some people don't like the word works, they would jump to covenant of life, and then the covenant of grace. And as we talk about the covenant of grace and its manifestations throughout the Old Testament, it began with Adam, and we see the first time we see it is Genesis 3.15, and it kind of manifests itself through Noah and Abraham and uh, David, Moses and in this in this movement forward, I got Moses and David confused there, but <laughs> but you get the the gist of it. And as it moves, it's pregnant with this truth until this truth is finally birthed, literally, in the new covenant of Christ who came, and that was obviously foretold by the prophets uh, Jeremiah thirty one thirty one through thirty four and Ezekiel thirty six twenty four through twenty eight are are pretty um, profound passages on the, the new covenant. And then Christ comes and he uh, sets everything in motion as far as uh, the, what, what I would call the, the breaking in of the kingdom, the inauguration of the kingdom. And that's a, a quick overview of, of the covenants. Now, the detailed aspects of that... Uh, Zach's already ready to jump in. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just are, listening very carefully to what you're saying. Are, are going to be are going to be nuances of difference between even the Westminster Confession and the London Baptist right. Confession, but the very first paragraph's the same. It is. I'm with you so far. Yeah, because <laughs> because what it's saying is God has to condescend to man in this relationship. The way He chooses to do it is through covenant. And in this covenant is this way in which God has described his relationship. It just so happens, ancient Near East, there's all these right. king and, and servant relationships that, that um, again, Meredith Klein helps to, to us to see. And, and if you've never read him, I would encourage you to, to, to spend some time reading him. But um, that is this idea of the way in which God communicates with man. Now, he's going to do that through a progressive nature, more and more we're going to be learning about grace. But, but grace was established, right, gentlemen, right there in Genesis 3.15, right. moving forward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did I miss anything on the, on the big picture stuff? I don't think so. I think it's yeah. like, it should be really clear, like, what a difference this is from dispensationalism. And, you know, we can compare our, our nuanced views back and forth, and there's, there's agreement and there's disagreement, but we're, we're unified as far as uh, what is the structure of the Bible? You know what I'm saying? And so, right. like, I've heard people say that 
uh, the covenants aren't like the main subject of the Bible, but they're the actual skeleton, like the framework. Like if you're, if you're in the Bible and you're looking out at the world, you see the framework of the covenants. And so that's something that sets us apart from different uh, evangelical streams of thought, like dispensationalism and, and things like that. And it's, it really is a world of difference. Like I can, I, I empathize a little bit with Chris, what he was saying earlier, because um, although I didn't label myself like dispensationalist, I kind of just soaked that in, like just from my church and left behind culture and stuff like that. And so uh, I just remember really a huge shift in my thought when I, like it really changes the way you read the entire Bible when you start thinking about it through the structure of, of covenants, you know, it changed the way I read everything, Old Testament, New Testament. And so it was kind of nerve wracking at first. You're like, have I been wrong about <laughs> all this all the time? But as far as that goes, we, we've got unity in that. I was going to say, it really helps you also to understand the the, the person and work of Christ, uh, the nature of the church, you know, what the church is. Um, uh, I think apart from it just sort of even that broad understanding of covenant as you see it throughout Scripture, that there's a whole lot of that that just doesn't come together. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And uh, I can remember one time I was teaching through the book of Nehemiah, and uh, we we came to this section where we started talking about covenant. And I don't know why, but I asked everybody who was there that evening, uh, how many of you guys understand what a covenant is? And nobody in the room knew what it was. Um, you know, some of them, I think, later would vaguely kind of express like a contract. And I said, well, that that is different. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, and it just kind of made me realize, wow, you know, when when Jesus says that his blood uh, is the blood of the new covenant, mm. uh, which is given for many, I mean, you would think that ought to make a stop and go, what is this covenant business? Right. Especially as you kind of look through the Old Testament and you see this progressive nature to this covenant of grace. And I guess before we can get to the progressive nature of the covenant of grace, we have to first stop off where our confessions do on the covenant of works. This is God's first uh, um, uh, <laughs> agreement with, with man. And the, the, the relationship here is bound in obedience. That's why it's gotten its term covenant of works. Um, again, some people don't like that, so they call it the covenant of life. And I, I get what they're saying, but it's a matter of nuances there. But as you walk through that and, and think about the, the consequence, very clearly, while they're in the garden, a, a God has provided everything for them. Even in the covenant of works itself, there's grace, correct, fellas? I mean, there's, there's grace in the covenant of works, the very fact that God is willing to even, A, condescend and have this relationship, that he has created a place for, that's taking care of all their needs, mm-hmm. and he's provided mm-hmm. them fellowship one with another, and yet there's disobedience, there's the fall. And in that, when you look at that fall, you realize the impact... Uh, R.C. Sproul loves to call it cosmic treason, right? right? Sin right there, cosmic Mm -hmm. treason. And they're immediately kicked out of the garden. And it's always interesting to me that prior to this, they could eat from every tree. And now they can't. (laughs) They can't (laughs) Mm -hmm. because the garden is closed down to them. The access to the tree of life and and, um, the fruit in the garden is, is closed off to them. 
but immediately you see this 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 buildup of grace in Genesis three fifteen where God provides for them clothes. Uh, he 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 chases after them, pursues them, um, and in that we see the the um, the uh, discipline handed out, the, the 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 judgments handed out, and right there in the midst of the judgment given to the serpent is this depiction of he who will come and crush the head of the serpent. Right. Uh, the Proto-Evangelium, the very first gospel. From that point on, Chris, kind of walk us through how the covenants progress with more and more of the knowledge of who he is. Well, I think as you progress through, you know, and you look at the Mosaic Covenant, uh, the Davidic Covenant, you start getting all of these various pictures of who this one is going to be who is to come. And it's interesting because in each one of those uh, each one of those covenants that we look through, uh, that there's the same pattern that keeps taking place. God blesses his people. His people respond with rebellion and disobedience. God pursues them uh, with hesed, with his, uh, his merciful, compassionate covenant love for his people, and he saves them by grace. And, uh, you know, that... In each one of those cases, you start seeing, as I said, that progression um, that you've got the seed of the woman who is promised there, as you said, in the uh, the Proto-Evangelium, and you've got uh, a prophet who would come who would be one uh, like Moses, uh, who would lead his people in a new exodus. Uh, I think you find that even uh, pictured a lot in the gospel accounts, uh, that Jesus is that one who comes like Moses, uh, leading his people out of uh, the world or, or Egypt as it's symbolized. Um, you have this one who is the Davidic king. Um, only in all the areas where each one of those uh, there in the Old Testament would fail, that Christ perfectly succeeds on behalf of his people. Uh, if you think about like Genesis 15, when there's a covenant made with Abraham, this is this is one of the first things that really made the just the concept of covenant click for me um someone who didn't grow up in that in that uh like line of thinking you know and it was I'll never forget it was a couple years ago I was listening to a sermon by Tim Keller and he was base essentially the beginning of his sermon and the, and the end of his sermon were kind of like two bookends in the beginning he was talking about you know the whole background of you know they cut these animals in half in that day and then the, the two parties of the covenant walk down, and they're essentially inviting a curse upon themselves should either one of them break the covenant. And then there's, especially in Genesis uh, 15, there is darkness that descends, right? And then Abraham is off by himself, and essentially God, a theophany, right, passes through the pieces alone. And so when Tim Keller explained that, and then he explained the gospel when Christ is on the cross, there's darkness descending, and then I saw the parallels between the two, and I understood, okay, God is God was saying to Abraham, if 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 I break this covenant, like may I be cursed, and if you break this covenant, I will bear the curse for you. And then when he drew that parallel between the two, it really clicked in my mind and it helped me grasp it just a whole lot better. Yeah. yeah and God is God is not only playing the role of the the suzerain, but also of the vassal. Right. That uh, God has taken the responsibility to where if the vassal fails to uphold his end, that God is still going to be faithful. And what what a great picture of the very doctrine of grace, right? You know that that is that is provided there. Um, 
taking a few more seconds going back to this idea of the covenant of works, there are some will say, well, that's done. Now we're in the dispensation of grace, so mm-hmm. we don't have to worry about that. Is that like a trigger anymore. word for you, dispensation? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just throwing it out there. Just throwing He's, it choking out there. It. He's choking on it. <laughs> but, but, but they would throw that away and say, you know, lo- no longer. And that's not the teaching in covenant theology. Mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the covenant of works is this ongoing uh, expectation, this uh, holy, righteous uh, action that God requires of his vassals. And, and we see allusions to this all the way through in the Old Testament, from uh, Abraham uh, to, to specifically with Moses, the giving of the law and the expectation mm-hmm. um, and in every one of those, as Chris, you've already said, there's the failure of man, but then Christ meets every one of those expectations. We talk about this a lot when we talk about the act of obedience of Christ. Christ right. fulfills the covenant of works for us, so therefore uh, it is fulfilled. Mm-hmm. It didn't go away. He didn't abolish it. He came to literally fulfill it, and therefore by fulfilling it now, he fulfills it. Therefore we fulfill it when we're in him. Right. And I think that's a strong point because that is a very big difference between covenant theology and dispensational uh, teaching that wants to say, well, that was a dispensation of law, now Mm -hmm. we're in the dispensation of grace, and they want to make a hard divide there, where I think we have to understand that the covenant of works is this overarching uh, aspect that Christ's act of obedience fulfills on our behalf. Right. It's not like God is just uh, looking the other way at our sin and saying, well, you're under grace now, so it's fine. Like, no, there's a righteousness that we actually have because of Christ, because of his act of obedience that's given to us, you know? It's not like he just winks at sin and says, okay, well, it's fine because you guys aren't, you guys aren't under the law anymore. Uh, but like you said, Christ fulfilled that. He lived perfectly and then through his death and resurrection paid for our sins and then gave us his righteousness. So it actually is fulfilled in Christ. And so it's a real righteousness that we possess, although it's not ours. It's a foreign righteousness, but nevertheless, we have righteousness. It's not like he just forgives sin in a vacuum, you know? That's right. Let's, let's hit, hit another uh, often misunderstood concept, and, and you'll hear people sometimes say, well, how many covenants are there? Um, and, you know, the di- in the dispensational camp, they use the term covenant, mm-hmm. and they love to talk about the seven covenants, right? And they'll break them all down, and they'll talk about them and polish them up and kind of help us to understand in their concept of the way it all fits, uh, but not so in the, in the, in the covenantal world, um, and, and when I say that, I mean the covenantal theology world, uh, many times we'll hear people say, well, there's two covenants, covenant of works, covenant of life, but you'll often hear people say there's one covenant. Chris, could you speak to that for a minute, why people, why people reference the idea that there's one covenant? Yeah, I think a lot of times, you know, people will go that way just, you know, to uh, try and avoid a, a lot of what you were just saying about, you know, all of these different covenants, and they'll say, well, there's just one general covenant that, uh, you know, keeps uh, being uh, kind of republished throughout Scripture until we come to what it, we now would say is the covenant of grace, which is really the same thing that has uh, existed all along. Yeah, because in the covenant of redemption, God in eternity past has made a covenant with himself that he was going to do the very things that the covenant of grace worked out, which made the covenant of works made necessary. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so in that, one of the questions often that pops up is, well, there really must only be one covenant, 
because God is, doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. He's always had a plan. Uh, he has had a very, very specific will. And so all that must be rooted from one. And I think, again, these are nuances of discussions that people begin to, to work out. But they do become some, some um, very captivating reading and, and debating as, right. you, as you watch <laughs> these things kind of being played out. As you move very quickly to the New Covenant, Zach, there's going to be <laughs> some differences between the London Baptist Confession and the Westminster Confession. Why don't you speak to that for a minute? With me? Okay, so um, I'm actually not 100% sure what yours says here, but mine would say, uh, let's see, um, it's chapter 7, uh, section 3, is uh, where there's a distinctive. And again, I'm new at this, so bear with me, but my confession says, this covenant is revealed in the gospel, uh, speaking of the new covenant, I believe. Uh, this covenant is revealed in the gospel first Oh, sorry. This covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all, to Adam and the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and is afterwards by further steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament, and it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect, and it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality, man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in his state of innocency. And so yours is different than that, right? Yeah. And so one of the things that, and that, uh, and I'm currently studying this, so one of the things that Reformed Baptists would say is that the, they, they equate the new covenant and the covenant of grace, and they say it's the same thing. And so anyone who is saved in the Old Testament was saved in virtue of the new covenant, although it wasn't uh, like officially ratified until Christ comes, right? But that retroactively, that new covenant is the same thing through grace, which saves everyone through the Old Testament. And so that's one of the views that's articulated by the 1689. And so you have differences with that, right? State your position again. I want to hear you. Okay. <laughs> it's hard for me to state <laughs> it because I'm... All right. So <laughs> it's it's... The, the view that was put forward by the authors of the 1689 was that, and the confession, uh, it allows for different views, but my understanding is that the view of the authors of my confession was that the new covenant is synonymous with the covenant of grace. And so the, they just, they'll use the term covenant of grace, but they'll just, they'll equate it with the new covenant and they say that's the same thing. And they, they use the term new covenant because it's the term that's in the Bible. And so they'll say the new covenant is present throughout beginning in Genesis 3. You see, you would say covenant of grace prophesied there, or it's, it's introduced there in a certain way. And then the language that's used in my confession is by further steps up until Christ. It's, it's revealed a little bit more, a little bit more here through the Mosaic, through the Abrahamic, through the Davidic, and I didn't get those in order, but that's fine. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the view of, of my confession, is that it's the new covenant, present all the way throughout redemptive history, although it's not fully revealed until Christ. Not that it was uh, the covenant of grace and the covenant or the new covenant are different. They say it's, it's the exact same thing, just different terms. I think. <laughs> yeah, I, Chris, you want to speak to that? No. <laughs> <laughs> I probably know the least out of everyone, and I'm the only one that was bothering to try to explain that. <laughs> That's okay. 
Well, the reason I think Chris and I are dancing around it is because I think we would both say that the 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 covenant mm-hmm. people, the Old Testament saints, were in the covenant, right? The new covenant, the the covenant of grace, okay, that was pregnant, right? They were saved by the work of Christ. When when Moses gets to heaven, he's not saved by his works; he's saved by Christ, right? He's pointing to Christ. Um, would you say that the Would you say that the new covenant and the covenant of grace are synonymous? Would I say what? Would you say that the new covenant and the covenant of grace are synonyms? Would you say it's the same thing? The new covenant and the covenant of grace are synonyms. Yeah, I wouldn't have a problem with that. I would. I what a reason I wouldn't is because I would say that then the covenant of grace was pregnant. Okay. And it's still the same child. When my wife was, preg- was pregnant with my old name is Noah, it was Noah all the way through. Right. Right? And then when she gave birth, now I knew Noah with personality and attitude and all the things he brings to the table. Yeah. But it was the same. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. I mean, the new covenant, I wouldn't say, is entirely uh, entirely new. Right. Uh, but that it is new in that it is better. Right. Right. Yeah. I think isn't that the whole point of, of of people sometimes think when we say new like as brand new, right? And we would say renewed, <laughs> uh, better. Um, it's better than what was. Um, and that's what Hebrews is saying specifically. Hebrews chapter eight, when he, he's really trying to bring about um, the the fulfillment of the new covenant, and he actually quotes in Hebrews chapter eight, Jeremiah thirty one thirty one through thirty four, um, and and in that. We have this fulfillment, but this fulfillment of what is better because now Christ is here and actually making these things realized. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the misconceptions I think a lot of times is that people say, "Well, was you know what's what's so new about the new covenant?" And people say, "Well, well now we have the Holy Spirit." You ever heard that, guys? Yeah, I, I love oh, when yeah. they say that. <laughs> it, like the Holy Spirit wasn't around in the <laughs> Old Testament, right? You know, <laughs> the Holy Spirit. It was around, uh, and and obviously there is some distinctiveness because of the inauguration of the kingdom now. Um, but he was there; he was regenerating people. He was there at creation. He was bringing conviction of sin. He was doing those things. It, he the the miraculous signs and wonders that were done. He was involved in those things. Um, so it's not like the Holy Spirit wasn't there. I think a lot of the questions that often come between the Reformed Baptist camp and the more, you know, what I almost said, more Reformed. That's, <laughs> that was a faux pas. But uh, a lot of people the, would agree with you if you said that. A lot of people would. But the the other Reformed camp, such as Presbyterian and the Dutch Reformed, is that we we would say it's an issue of the, it, where it all comes down to is the issue of the sign and seal. Right. Who who has access to it? This comes down to this question, which is, where were there people in the in the covenant of grace as you've described mm-hmm. that were not elect, elect were not saved, and who were part of that covenantal community? Chris and I, we would say yes, um, and I think in the New Testament we would use. Um, things such as the believing spouse making the unbelieving spouse holy, mm-hmm. the children are holy, um, from uh, from First Corinthians. We would use uh, passages such as Hebrews chapter 6 when it talks about those who have tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord, but um, 
um, do not believe. Mm-hmm. Well, in that, that's not a person losing their salvation. We would say that was part of that um, that covenant community, but who did not have salvific faith um, in in the Messiah. Is that the way you understand that as well, Chris? Yeah, yeah, I definitely look to the warning passages in the New Testament, uh, Romans 11, you said Hebrews 6, uh, also Hebrews 10, uh, John 15, that uh, uh, dealing with what you might consider an external association with the covenant community, uh, but not internalized, um, that, uh, that it is possible for somebody to be a participant in the covenant blessings without actually being a partaker in the covenant. As you can tell, our discussion for the covenants is pretty lengthy, so we're going to actually stop this week at that point, and we'll pick up again next week. Just want to say thanks to our listeners and look forward to uh, catching with you next week. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective Podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com and be sure to like our Facebook page.